Sorry about yesterday, mate. We're in a great race. Frank Dunn. Archie Hamilton. Well, it just gave me a hell of a shock to be beaten right out here. Won everything there was to win in Perth. I was just lucky. Well, look, anyone who runs under nine and a half with crook feet isn't just lucky, mate. the Mad Max Minute Podcast. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching Gallipoli from 1981. This is our first hiatus episode, fresh off of Road Warrior. And so we figured we would start off with a Mel Gibson movie from the same year that Road Warrior came out. Gallipoli was directed by Peter Weir. It was written by David Williamson, who did the screenplay, and Peter Weir, who did the story. And it stars Mel Gibson, Mark Lee, and Bill Kerr. So Julia, have you ever seen Gallipoli before? I haven't. No, have you? I first saw this movie back in, I want to say, high school, because I think middle school was more focused on U.S. history, and so we really got into world history around high school, and so I think it was my sophomore year that this movie was shown in class. Yeah, from what I know of this movie, it sounds like the kind that would be shown in school. I mean, it's rated PG. You don't have to send home a permission slip for it. You can just show it. And I remember it having a really sad ending. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, it's a war movie. It's World movie, War I. <laughs> so, of course, it's going to have a sad ending. Yeah. And I know enough about Gallipoli in real life to know this is going to have a sad ending. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had one of your history podcasts talk about Gallipoli? Absolutely. That's the only reason I know anything about it at all. It's the only reason I've ever heard the word Gallipoli. Never heard it in school Mm -hmm. at all. The only reason that I know anything about Gallipoli or Anzac Day or any of the stuff surrounding that is because of my history podcast I listen to. Well, and that one episode of us doing season one where we talked about the Anzac Memorial in Clunes, right? Yes. Okay. When I think back about this movie, and the first time I saw it back in high school, which was a long time ago now, but I did not remember that Mel Gibson was actually a star in this movie. Like, I remember the storyline about them being sprinters and volunteers and them going overseas and there being a funny scene about a venereal diseases and things like that, but I didn't really remember too many specific details about who's in it and whatnot. I think at one point there's a giant wooden horse and they use that as a recruiting tactic, but other than that, it's nothing specific. So do you have any expectations for this movie before we sit down and watch it? I'm not really sure. I'm expecting a dour movie Mm -hmm. because it is World War One and it is about Gallipoli and I know how hard fought and tragic that event was so i don't have much hope of being humorously entertained i mean Mm -hmm. you did just say that there was a humorous scene and i suppose the phenomenon of taking a dramatic movie and infusing it with humor i suppose that's not a new phenomenon I suppose it's probably always been done. So I guess that's really what I'm expecting. Okay. Considering that I've already seen this movie once before, I'm expecting to have one of those situations where you go back and watch something and you start remembering things that you saw and gaining new appreciation for what you missed before. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I'll definitely be paying better attention this time because, I mean, when you're in high school and your teacher says, oh, today we're going to watch a movie. Like, that's basically code talk for you don't have to pay attention in class today. Mm-hmm. Like, if anything, the stereotype is that as soon as the teacher pulls out that video, it means that they maybe had one too many drinks the night before and they've just got a headache and they need to sit in the dark <laughs> with their head on the desk. <laughs> you joke about seeing a teacher of yours in your place of employment in high school, which was a grocery store, coming in and buying boxed wine frequently? Was it the same teacher? Oh, no, 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 no. No, completely different area of study. Anyone who went to my high school around the time I was there knows that there was one teacher who enjoyed their wine. (laughs) 
<laughs> and figured it would be a show of good faith to frequent the grocery stores where her students worked when she procured said wine. Mm -hmm. I meant to do like all the non-gendered pronouns and I just realized I did a bunch of them. So yeah, that's okay. That's all right. No one knows where I went to high school anyway. <laughs> you know, it's funny that she did that because the state line is right there. She could have gone across the state line and none of her students would have been there. Yeah, but then you'd have to pay tax. It's just easier to stay. So paying a little bit more money for anonymity, I feel, is worth it. Mm, yeah, I don't think she felt that way. Okay. <laughs> I just find it funny that she went to a regular grocery store and not like the state liquor store or something like that. But I don't know if the state liquor store actually sells boxed wine. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it does. Honestly, it's the last thing I would look for. Yeah. But anyway, what we're going to do, we're going to have the trailer for this movie run. We'll let everybody listen to it. When we come back, we will have sat down, watched the movie, and you will catch us fresh off of our viewing experience. And we'll be right back. you never heard of comes a story you'll never forget we are i knew at the onset when i was putting down the list for what hiatus material we were gonna watch in this break i knew what we were getting into with gallipoli and yet i don't think you can ever really like sit down watch gallipoli and feel good about yourself afterwards I almost don't know what to say. Yeah. I'm sad and disappointed that this was a real thing. Yeah, I think that's the most heartbreaking part of it. Right. It never claimed to be based on a true story. Right. So the characters and the specifics are completely made up. But the very fact that things like this actually happened yeah. is heartbreaking. And that an entire army was... <laughs> wasted yeah for, and, for the dumbest reason and discounted it's just so many oh my gosh so many people died and i don't get emotional in movies a lot but the part at the end where they're taking their knives and sticking them into the sandbags they are building their own memorials yeah i <laughs> that got to me and it makes me want to know more Right. I think that's kind of where I end up at the end, mm -hmm. is that it makes me want to know more. Even though it's an unpleasant subject, I want to know the truth. Yeah, because we get a very tailored view of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, David Weir wrote the story for this, and then he went back and had David Williamson help him with the screenplay. And so not everything in this movie is going to be point-for-point point reality. Like, I'm sure there are some tiny details that are different than actual history. Well, not like that whole watch hand being five, seven minutes off one guy to the other. Yeah, I'm curious if that was based off of perhaps a time misunderstanding that happened in real life. Yeah. It seemed to be something that was based off an actual event. But again, nobody ever claimed that this was based off of actual events. Right. And I appreciate that. A lot of movies, 
I say nowadays, but I'm sure it's been happening forever that we've been making movies, claim to be based on actual events. And it's really more like they were inspired by actual events. Mm -hmm. They've changed it so much that they can hardly claim that anymore. So I appreciate that they were inspired by events that happened, but did not claim at all to be anything factual. Yeah. But it still felt like it was. My initial reaction to finishing the movie is, and I think you said it before, just a sense of heartbreak over the fact that because of a miscommunication and because of poor technology, that the order not to do the third wave attack didn't get through. Yeah, it... It helps me to understand why wars are followed by huge jumps in technology. Yeah. Because all the resources of a country are like, hey, we have this problem. Let's figure out how to solve this problem. So they do. And so they make better weapons or better communication or better transportation to save lives. And then that trickles down into post-war and society as a whole. So this is a perfect example of... They've got to improve their communication skills yeah, and their communication technology. World War I is definitely the one major world war where technology jumped forward in a terrifying way. Like the whole idea of trench warfare with the gases and the machine guns and the armored vehicles that they developed, like the whole thing. And I mean, I'm glossing over it with a very heavy veneer. <laughs> <laughs> World War One was awful. It really was. Like, looking at it in hindsight, it did a lot that was just the lowest that humanity could sink. I mean, to say nothing of the geopolitical ramifications of the conflict itself, but just the way it started was so dumb. And every time Mel Gibson's character was like, it's not our war. And it, the people that they met in the outback, they were like, oh, there's a war going on? Who started it? Well, no one really knows type of thing. Yeah. Ugh, it was rough. Before we start jumping around to different parts of the story, we should probably start back at the beginning. Yeah, let's be a little more organized. All right. So we start May 1915. We're with Archie Hamilton, who's played by Mark Lee. He is this young blonde athlete kid out in Western Australia, and he is a runner. And he's working with his Uncle Jack, I think it is. Yeah, his Uncle Jack. And he's, you know, spending his days herding cattle, sending his afternoons training to be a runner and it's just a boy in the outback i did like that he was a little bit more than a runner he wasn't like a professional athlete who decided to go join the war he was not only a ranch hand he was in charge of the ranch hands well i think his dad owned the right because farm. he was the son of the owner mm -hmm. so even though he was younger than most, if not all, of the ranch hands. He seemed to be in charge, although he did seem to have a little bit of trouble commanding respect. Yeah, there was that one ranch hand. I think his name is Les. Yes, I think so. He was the one that gave him trouble and guff and right. talked back. So the first thing we see of Les is that he doesn't want to do his job. Mm -hmm. And Archie asks him to do something specific, which I didn't catch what it was. It was like opening the gate or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And Les resists. Archie puts his foot down. So Les does it in such a way that scatters the cattle. And so they have to like re-center the cattle. Yeah. Yeah. How is that not a fireable offense? Well, I mean... He did it on purpose. It's 1915 in Western Australia. Where are you going to find people to help? I mean, you got to weigh insubordination against being short a ranch hand for however long. But all that we saw of Les, he never did the group any good. He only gave them more work to do. I don't know. I, yeah. I'm not a ranch runner in <laughs> 1915 Western Australia. I don't know what to tell you. As far as we saw of him, he was only a hindrance. Yeah. So I that wonder why he uh, got to keep his job. Although later on in the movie, we see him in the trenches. So maybe he did get fired. I don't think we ever see Les talking to the other ranch hands about joining up. But when Archie tries to sign up for the first time. Les is the one in line who says, I know this kid ain't That's 21. Right. That's right. Yeah. But I still think maybe he joined because he got fired. But before we get to that, Les is insubordinate to Archie. He's not listening to him. And so Les starts making fun of Archie because Archie is really friendly with, I think his name was Zach. Yes. He was the, um, the Aborigine native helper on the ranch. And so Zach 
says that Archie can outrun less while Les is riding a horse. Okay, that was really annoying. Like, Zach, speak for yourself, man. Yeah, I don't like it when people speak up in that way. Right. Like, about other people. Fantastic. Speak up in defense of your friend. That's great. <laughs> but don't claim that he can do something that would cost him a great deal. <laughs> it's incredibly yeah. presumptuous of Zach. Yeah. So basically they put a bet together. Les says that he will ride the horse and Archie will have to run back to the ranch house barefoot. And so Archie fires back, well, if I'm running barefoot, you have to ride bareback. And so Zach does this thing. He runs over to a bunch of leaves, grinds them up in his hands and then rubs the leaves on the bottom of Archie's feet. Mm. It's probably... One of those just outback tricks. I'm sure someone in the listeners group is going to explain how that works. I don't <laughs> really want to look it up or anything like that. But basically, Archie gets to run across country. Les has to run along the road, which I guess is so much longer. But basically, Archie ends up winning the race because Les falls off the horse and therefore doesn't make it back to the ranch house. <laughs> right. I guess I was okay with that. I mean, I wanted our protagonist, Archie, to win. There was a point in the race where their paths crossed and they actually met there almost exactly at the same time with Les on the horse doing much better than Archie mm -hmm. running was doing. So in essence, he passed him at that point. Yeah. I was actually surprised about how much time they devoted to this race. And I'm going to say that a lot as we're going through this movie. Yeah. They devote a lot of time in this movie called Gallipoli to things that are not directly Gallipoli related. Right. They don't even join the army until like halfway through the movie. Exactly. Archie gets back home. His feet look like they've been through a meat grinder. They are just cut up and gross. Yep, and he has a big race in three days. Yeah, so obviously his uncle is really upset. Archie is just blowing it off like it's nothing. And that's the hubris of youth. What are you going to do? Kids think they are invincible. Right, and he turns out to be right. Yeah. He still won his race. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, despite Archie's dad thinking that all of this running around is a waste of time compared to, you know, working on the ranch, because that's, you know, typical fare. If you're a father of a protagonist, your job is going to be, kids, stop thinking about thing A, you need to focus on the ranch. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing else to say about that, because it is so just how it is all the time. Mm -hmm. I have a question about this off-screen character of Harry LaSalle's mm -hmm. and how he was connected to Jack and Archie? Uh, Harry LaSalle's was the world champion who ran a 100-yard sprint in less than 10 seconds. I don't know much about him else from that because that's what it says in the synopsis I'm reading. Okay, so he was just a successful runner that Archie looked up to. Yeah. Okay, because he seemed to be referenced kind of a lot. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe there was more connection than that. Ah, okay. The reason you've never heard of Harry LaSalle's is that he's fictional. He was made up for the movie. Okay, that makes sense. So he's just a runner that Archie, you know, holds in very high esteems. He's there basically to <laughs> give Archie a hero to think of and to supply him with a fake name once he gets down the road a little bit. Okay. One thing that I didn't really notice when we were watching, I heard the words, but I didn't make the connection. When they show that scene of Uncle Jack in his cabin with the kids and he's reading the Jungle Book, the part of the Jungle Book that he's reading, and thank you to whoever wrote the IMDb plot summary for this, but the part of the Jungle Book that Uncle Jack is reading is the passage where Mowgli reaches manhood, loses his innocence, and must leave his family of wolves in order to, like, go join man. It's that whole thing about how Mowgli is crying for the first time and ah. realizes that he needs to, like, go join mankind. Yeah, which is basically the synopsis of this entire movie. Yeah, a young idealistic child who has to leave his family and loses his innocence and is tainted by the world. Mm -hmm. So I missed that. I'm glad the person put it into their uh, summary here. Yeah, I missed it too. I liked that little scene. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what he was reading, but it was clear he wasn't reading them a fairy tale. He was reading them something more important yeah. and more serious or grounded than... A children's bedtime story. Have you uh, ever read The Jungle Book? I have not. Neither have I. I don't feel a lot of motivation to, mostly because I didn't enjoy the movie. The Disney movie, I should say. The Disney animated movie. It's well, really my only experience with The Jungle Book, and I didn't really enjoy it, so. Well, I know for a fact that The Jungle Book, the book, 
is different than the Jungle Book, the movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how, but I just know it is because Disney does not do straight one-to-one -one adaptations. No, they don't. No. Let's see. The Jungle Book, written by Rudyard Kipling. Now, I've read Kipling before, have I? I, I think I have. I can't remember what, though. What are his most famous books? Uh, Jungle Book, Just So Stories, Kim, Captain Courageous, If, Gunga Din, The White Man's Burden. Huh. Could have sworn... He wrote something about a couple of guys that... The man who would be king. ...went into the jungle and, like, took over a tribe or something like that. I can't remember what it was called. Rudyard Kipling was a well-accomplished author who wrote a lot. Yes. Stories, short stories, poetry, etc., mm -hmm. etc. Et but in this instance, they were reading from The Jungle Book. Okay. So, yeah. If you were put off by the Disney version, don't let that discourage you from reading the book. I find that with a lot of movies. Yeah. Yeah. The, the book is better. Mm -hmm. By the very nature of the medium, it can be better because movies only get two hours and a book gets however long it feels like. Yeah. Plus, however long it needs. Disney isn't going to take the time to go into themes such as growing out of an environment that in which you're raised. No, they're going to focus on singing elephants and hypnotizing snakes and all of that other stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't judge that man. <laughs> I wouldn't judge that author on on Walt Disney's accord. Anyway, we go from that scene with Uncle Jack reading to the kids and we meet up with Mel Gibson's character Frank Dunn for the first time and he is I guess a railroad worker? I guess so. Well, no, I don't guess so. I know so. But I'm not sure what he did. Yeah. It's really never made clear. And it's also not important because, honestly, they quit the next morning. Mm -hmm. So, in it, a really fun way. Yeah. Like, if you're ever going to quit a job, <laughs> that was a pretty good way to do it. Yeah, it's him and his three friends and... Bill, Snow, and Buddy? I only know them by the nicknames that I gave them. Beanpole, Mustache, and Blondie. Okay. So that's just what I'm going to call them because it's going to be easier for me. Oh, okay. So they're all sitting around the fire and they're like, oh, hey, there's this giant war going on. And look at this. The Australians won a great victory getting the cliffs of Gallipoli away from the Turks. And so Blondie is like, oh, we should join up for, you know, the glory of the country or something like that. They make fun of Beanpole because he's ugly and Mustache is like, well, it's better than working on the railroad. And they're like, Frank, you should come along with us. And Frank's like, no, I'm good. I appreciate his honesty. He has no interest in the war at all. And he could placate them, mm -hmm. but he doesn't. Frank is interesting. He's an interesting mix of honest and deceiving. Yeah. He lies at the drop of the hat for no reason at all. But then he's also brutally honest at other times. He's an interesting character. I think politically he's not afraid to speak his mind. But when he's in a situation where he can gain the upper hand by, you know, stretching the truth and saying things that are not the case, then yeah. he's going to do that. But... Him and his friends decide that running off to join the infantry is better than working on the railroad. So as the train comes in the next morning, their foreman or boss, whoever he is, he comes out to wave down the train. And then as the train passes, Frank and his buddies burst forth from the tents that they're hiding in yep. and jump on the back of the train. They're all dressed and packed. And I'm confused. <laughs> what were they supposed to be doing? Maintaining the railway, I guess. Uh, okay. That's the only thing I can think of. Okay. But yeah, they piece out of there real quick. So whatever it is they were doing doesn't matter anymore. Nope, it doesn't. So Archie and his Uncle Jack are heading off to this regional track and field competition. And Frank, fresh off the train from wherever he was, is there as well. And he's trying to get some money out of the race. And I guess what he does is he goes as a late entry and bets on himself to win. He does. Is that what you think? Yes. Okay. I was a little confused how he got in. The uh, registration guy says that registration closed a week ago, and then Frank gives him his name and lets him write in. Mm -hmm. So I really don't know what happened there. Well, I think he put up the money for a bet, and at the opportunity of making a little side money, the guy behind the counter with that great mustache that came off of his lip across his face and up to his sideburns, who I'm pretty sure was the station master from Mad Max 1979. <laughs> pretty sure. Yeah, he just lets him right in. And so Frank gets into this race, and it's the one where Archie is set to run. And they show Archie putting on his shoes, and his feet are still, like, 
cut to ribbons. Oh, they are. What's interesting about this race, though, that stood out to me, is that when they tell everyone to get on their marks and get dug in or whatever they say, Frank doesn't get down on the ground like the other runners. He stays in a mostly standing position. Yes, he does. I think that definitely says that he does not have a trainer. Mm-hmm. I think most of the other guys in that race, they may not have a trainer as dedicated as Uncle Jack to Archie, but they have people that they work with, at mm-hmm. least other runners that they train with. So they stay up to date on the latest techniques and improvements. Frank's not like that. He goes from place to place to place and hey, he can run real fast. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure he trains. I'm not sure he has proper equipment. I don't think we get a good look at his shoes. But there weren't really running shoes in those days anyways. They were um, like cleats. Yeah, they were like regular shoes. With spikes on the bottom. Exactly. Right. So long story short, they run this race and Frank comes in second to Archie. And so he loses out on his bet, unfortunately. And as everyone is celebrating this race that just happened, in come the army recruiters. Yes, and the wooden horse from your memories. Yes. The wooden horse is for the light cavalry. Yes. Is that what it is? Yes. So they are just accepting whoever wants to sign up because, you know, it's a war. So they need soldiers. And this is Archie's first opportunity to sign up. He goes to Uncle Jack, says, I'm not coming home. I'm signing up with the military and I'm going to go off to war. And so Jack's like, well, I can't stop you. Here's my watch. You know, keep it safe. And they go their different ways. And so Archie goes up to the sign up desk and he is standing before the recruiter and he says, I want to join. And the recruiter says, how old are you? You don't look 21 unless good old Les pipes up from the back. He's 18. Yeah. So Archie tries to do a clever thing of showing them how good he can ride. Mm-hmm. Doesn't work out, though. No, which you can tell the recruiter wanted it to work out. He wanted to take him. Mm-hmm. And he says to him, we can make allowances for six months or so, but three years is too much. So he gets booted, which by this time, his uncle is gone. Oh, yeah. So he is left there all by himself, which I don't think is actually a problem. I think he's kind of a rich kid. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He's, he's an adult no matter what. Eighteen? Mm, well, he's an adult to us here in America in 2017, but in Australia in 1915, was There's, he an adult? In 1915, 12-year-olds were adults. Well, they weren't allowed to join the army. Well, you know, you got to be of a certain age before you get shot up by a Turk. Not in America. You can be... 18 in America, same age as being an adult. Okay, so I found something really interesting. I didn't find the answer to my question. But what I did find is this little blurb. In June of 1915, one month after this scene where he gets rejected for being 18, the age range and minimum height requirements were changed to 18 to 45 years old. Huh. So one month after this scene took place, the minimum requirement was changed to 18. So if he had just waited... Yeah. If he had just waited, he would have been able to go with his own name without a forged birth certificate from his own home. He wouldn't have had to literally walk across the desert to Perth if he had just waited one month. Yeah. And that actually would have come out really well for Archie because he probably wouldn't have been at Gallipoli that day specifically. Well, yes, that is true, but there were plenty of those days at Gallipoli. He just would have been in another one. After the recruiters come through and Archie is rejected, he is sitting at a local tea room and Frank walks by, looks in the window, sees Archie and recognizes him as the kid that beat him in the race. He'd been salty to Archie back at the race. Yeah. Archie had said, hey, good job. Congratulations on coming in second. You really, you know, gave me a run for my money. And Frank was not nice to him. Yeah, because he lost a bunch of money. Yeah. (laughs) So he goes in and he sits down with Archie and the waitress comes by and Frank is just a dick. Yeah, he is. Is it because he has no money? I think he... Is it a cover? I think he was acting all self-important exactly because he's broke. Right. It's like classic bully. Like you bully other people because you feel insecure about yourself. Mm -hmm. And I love the whole move where... The waitress comes by and she's about to take away Archie's plate of unfinished food. And Frank's like, "Uh uh-uh, he's not done. Get out of here. Yeah. So Archie's like, I don't don't want any of this food. And Frank's like, okay, I'll take it. it. And he starts scarfing (laughs) it down because he's too broke to buy his own food. Yeah. Yes. So Archie is all forlorn that he can't sign up with the military since he's underage. And he doesn't know that in a month's time they're going to drop the age restriction. And so Frank says, they don't know you're not 21 in Perth. And they're like, cool, let's go to Perth. 
So they jump on this train. And initially, Archie is much more successful than Frank, despite the fact that Frank is much more experienced with the idea of jumping on railway cars. Yeah, Archie is of a disposition where he's very willing to do things. And actually, Frank says way later down in the movie, he says, you know, the thing I hate about you most is you're always so damn cheerful. <laughs> and he's absolutely right. Archie is always happy. He's always trying new things. He does his best. He puts his best foot forward. And yeah. They get on this train and they ride the rail car. They got the doors closed. And Archie's like, hey, do you think this train is actually going to Perth? And Frank's like, well, where else could it go? And they find out the next morning exactly <laughs> where else it could go because they'd wake up in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I think that's a danger of climbing on the very last car on the train. Mm -hmm. So there is a railway foreman who's just watching them climb out of this railway car. And he tells them that the train will be back to collect the car in two weeks. And if they want to get to Perth faster, that they will have to walk across a lake bed. And so they do for what feels like much longer than it actually is. Yeah, that took a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, visually, it was very nice. Yeah. I liked the play on their outfit colors. Archie was dressed in white and Frank was dressed in black. There was a few scenes where there's literally nothing else in the scene. It's just flat ground. And you've got this white character and this black character that you can see very clearly just walking away from the screen and just walking and walking and walking forever and ever and ever. And so I really enjoyed that juxtaposition between the two of them. And then I also really enjoyed as they're going on and it seemed to take two days. Uh, yeah, We were only so. shown one overnight scene. Doesn't mean it didn't last longer, but we were only shown one overnight scene. Just the degrading condition of the both of them. Mm -hmm. Less and less clothing, more and more sweaty, more... I liked that Frank kept putting more things on his head. <laughs> yeah. Because he was wearing a city hat, where Archie was wearing a country hat. Right. So he had no problem. Hmm. One thing I liked about this scene was how Frank and Archie got into, like, their viewpoint on the war. Mm -hmm. How Frank was like, this isn't my war. And Archie's like, yeah, but we're loyal to the crown, so we need to be patriotic and support our country and our countrymen and all of this stuff. And... We don't get Frank's background revealed until after they get to Perth, so we'll save that for when we get to it. But basically, they're diametrically opposed. Like, Archie is all about joining up. Frank could care less. Right. As they're wandering, things seem dire, and then Archie finds camel tracks. And it leads them to a dude with a camel who's just walking through the desert. And so this dude with the camel's like, why are you guys out here? And they're like, we need to get to Perth. And he's like, why? <laughs> like, what use could you possibly have for Perth? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I went there once. I, I thought I should see a proper city before I died. He so, was amusing. So the guy's like, well, why are you going to Perth? And they're like, we're going to join the war. And guy's like, what war? I love that he legitimately did not know that there was a world war going on. Mm -hmm. That delights me. That he lives so far out on the edges of society that he'd never even come across a newspaper or a radio broadcast. In our day and age, that just seems crazy. To be that separated out from new information. Yeah. I liked how every time this random guy in the desert asked about this war, Frank said, ask him and motioned to Archie. Yeah. Because Frank could care less about the world war. Yeah. Archie's all about it. And so the old guy's like, oh, what's this war all about? And Archie's like, oh, you know, it's it's Germany. We got to stop them. The old guy's like, well, how did it start? And Archie's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, you reflected the knowledge base of <laughs> at least most Americans. <laughs> yeah. Man. World War One. It was so... <sighs> it, uh, it was just such a snowball effect. Like one thing happened. There was one person was assassinated and then A got mad at B and then C had to also get mad at B yep. and then D also had to get mad at A and C. Like the alliances that were set up is what caused the world war. Yeah. More so than one guy getting assassinated. Everybody got dragged into every other thing. And so Archie's like, well, we need to stop the Germans over there before they get here. And so the guy with the camel's like, hey, if they want to take this place... <laughs> I loved that line. They can have it. Oh, that was so great. Especially after we spent the last, like, what, 15 minutes? Felt like it. Just walking through the desert, and this guy's like, they can have this. Yeah. That was great. So they eventually get to a 
nearby plantation house and they meet up with this nice family that's willing to let them stay over and then drive them into the city. Yes, very nice family. Mm -hmm. And of course, this was a very patriotic family and so they're all over Archie, this whole I want to go join the the troops type thing. Yes. And Frank's like hiding how much he actually doesn't want to go. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He says something vague about he's not going because of business interests. And Archie's like, what business interests? And Frank's like, you know, business. Money. <laughs> Finance. And things like that. When does he reveal it that he wants to open a bike shop? Is that later on? Nope, it's during this conversation. Oh, okay, it's right now. Which, if he does, he does. If he doesn't, he doesn't. And it's kind of nice that Frank has an interest in bicycles. I like that this character that we've seen flip-flop kind of all over the place and say things that aren't true and lie to get what he wants and just be kind of untrustworthy in general Mm -hmm. has this something about him that he loves that he wants to accomplish that he wants to open a bike shop and even if that's just a story it's it's a nice bit of flavoring oh you think it's just a story (laughs) with him who knows oh okay i believed him and we know that he owned a bike yep because again way down the line when he's actually in gallipoli he receives a bill for the guy who fixed it a year and a half ago Yeah. Too funny. So they get a ride from the plantation family. They make it to Perth and Frank and Archie go meet up with Frank's dad. Yes. Which is where Archie gets a age up makeover from Frank. Yes. Which was played delightfully goofy and in the end turned out really well. Yeah, it turned out better than I expected it to. It turned out better than it had any right to. Yeah, but it's here in this instance that we get a little bit of back and forth between Frank and his father, and we learn that Frank's family, the Dunn family, is from Ireland, which is not surprising. No. And the British did all of these terrible things to Frank's grandfather, and so the idea of Frank going to sign up with the Australian military is horrifying to frank's dad and so frank's like listen i'm not gonna fight for the british i'm you know gonna be an officer and come back and have a nice uniform and get a lot of money and all this other stuff it's not political for him it's monetary and so this appeases frank's dad and so as they go to sign up for the light cavalry archie does very well frank not so much no they showed a scene back at the ranch that they found after the desert walk where Archie tried to teach Frank how to ride a horse. And it was comical because Frank couldn't even get up on the horse. The horse kept moving around. Yeah. So I suppose there's something about mounting a horse that keeps the horse still that Frank wasn't doing. Anyways, apparently that's as far as they got. Because Frank gets up on the horse at the test just fine, but can't get the horse to move because he doesn't know he's supposed to kick the horse to get him going. Yeah. So he ends up being the laughing stock. Everybody laughs at him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he goes off dejected, and that's where he meets up with his friends, Beanpole, Mustache, and Blondie, or Billy, Barney, and Snowy. Fun thing about Mustache, played by Robert Grubb, this is not going to be the last that we see of him. He's going to show up in Thunderdome. Do you want to take a guess <gasps> of who he's going to be? Oh, I know exactly who he is. The nose gives it away. Yeah. He's the pig stealer. Yep. Yeah. Good old pig I... killer thought I recognized him. Yeah, I didn't recognize him. I only know it because I'm looking at his IMDb page. Yeah, I was looking at the list of people and looking at their photos, and I saw his photo from, like, way down the line, much more modern than now, and he's slightly older, And mm-hmm. but I still, like, I know that face. <laughs> yeah, okay. you slap a mustache underneath that nose, and it'll... Yeah. It'll disguise him a little bit to someone like me. But no, seeing him (laughs) without a mustache, I know exactly where we're going to see him. So when Frank meets up with his friends, they decide that all four of them are going to sign up for the infantry, which is separate from the cavalry, even if I might mix them up sometimes. Cavalry, horses, infantry, on foot. And so they're going to join up all together. And as they're going through the sign-up process, there's at one point where the inspector has his, I guess, depressor in Blondie's mouth. And he's like, oh, your teeth are really bad. We could kick you out for that. And Frank comes over and says, you fail him, you fail all of us. And so the guy's like, all right, whatever, go on. Right, because you'd rather have one guy with bad teeth than four less guys. Mm -hmm. It's at this point that we finally are at the point where they're actually in the military. Right. And this is like halfway through the movie. Yeah. We took a break during... 
Is it still during the desert? Yeah, it was during the Egypt scenes. Oh, okay. We took a break in the Egypt scenes and we were an hour into the movie. Yeah. We haven't quite gotten to Egypt at this point. But at this point, there's one more time where Archie and Frank run into each other, where Frank is enlisted and Archie is enlisted. They run into each other at the boat and then Archie gets on the boat. No. Frank's not enlisted at that point. No, I think Archie only finds out that Frank enlisted when they run into each other in Egypt. That's right. In Cairo. That's right. Yeah. Okay, I got mixed up. It's a long the movie. Main, it's like two hours the, long. The boat loading scene, I think, only served to show us the cavalry commander. He says goodbye Major to... Major Barton. Yes, Barton. He says goodbye to his wife. And it's actually really moving. Mm. She gives him, and it comes back again at the end of the movie, she gives him a little care basket, naming a few things that are in there. And I don't remember anything besides the bottle of champagne. She says, drink this on our anniversary. And There's was, so much going on in this movie. I get confused so easily. Yeah. But yeah, Barton. Barton. And it was a very touching moment. And sometimes I think the officers in the upper echelon of military kind of get discounted in compared to the enlisted men, where the enlisted men are giving up so much. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that are going to die. They're going to die. And the officers are seen sometimes having a more cushy job and having privilege. But this scene shows us that is just as hard for him and his family than it is for any of the other enlisted guys. It puts them emotionally on a similar footing, that he also has a wife and a kid who he is saying goodbye to possibly forever. Mm -hmm. They get on the boat, they go, and then after all of this stuff in Australia, we... Slingshot forward to July 1915. Yep. We are in Egypt, we are in Cairo, and Frank and his buddies in the infantry are training apparently near the pyramids because they're a huge set piece right part there. of this. Yeah. I love the visuals of the single peaked tents, and there's a smattering of them. Well, more than a smattering. There's probably like a dozen of them in frame with the big classic pyramids in the background of the same shape. Mm -hmm. It was very nice. Then we pan over to a rugby game. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time in Egypt. We do. There are antics afoot. There are little vignettes here and there. The first one, of course, being the rugby game, where I think it's the Western Australia guys versus a division from Victoria. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, he refers to them as the Vicks. Yeah, So I can yeah. only assume... It's East versus West uh -huh. in this rugby game. But there's also another character that comes in in this Egypt setting. And I looked up his name so I don't screw it up. Sergeant Sayers. He's the guy in charge of the infantry and their training. And so he briefs them before they go off for um, not so much shore leave because they're already on land to begin with. But... Right, but it's the same. Yeah. It's the same thing. And Sergeant Sayers, it took me a while. Mm -hmm. Took me a while. But right from the beginning, I'm like, oh, he looks familiar. And then he looked more and more familiar until I had to look it up. And it is the same actor as Bubba Zanetti. Yep, it's Jeff Perry. Yes. The hair color really threw me. <laughs> yeah, he's a little bit older. He's not platinum blonde anymore. Right, he's a little fuller in the face. Yeah. But I really liked him. I liked his character. We don't really, like, get to know him at all on a personal level. He's not that kind of character. No. But he does get to talk a lot. Yeah. We get to see some antics. There is a whole thing where Blondie is really adamant about not overpaying for things, and they have to chide him for that. At one point, they run into some English officers as they're buying donkeys or something like that, and then the English officers are all high and mighty, and so all of a sudden, Frank and his friends come up behind the English officers, and they're riding the donkeys, pretending to be... The British officers. Right. Well, did you notice, I think it was Snowy who started to salute the English officers. And then Frank, like, put and his hand Frank down. And Frank put his hand down. Yeah. I think that calls back to his familial relationship with the English, that he has absolutely no intention of saluting these British officers. Yeah. He has a great disdain for them. And then, yeah. They rent these donkeys and go on mocking the British officers, yeah. which is delightful. And how did they not get in trouble for doing this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, quick note. Canes are part of their uniform. Apparently, because each and every single one of those infantrymen had a cane. Yes. Every single one. And they weren't all the same one. No, they weren't. A lot of them were the same. But then there were some, like, 
Frank's was black or dark. I think so. Yeah. And then somebody else has had some red, I think, on mm. it. I don't remember specifics, but a lot of them were the same, but then there were some that weren't. But we get to see other stuff. They are sitting in a Casbar at some point, and they are, like, flipping over these really old-timey pornography trading cards or something like that. Okay, I was wondering if these were, like, trading cards or advertisements. Well, they could Probably be one both. or the other. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're advertisements, but they could be kept and traded and collected. Yeah. I think they were treating them like trading cards. Yeah. Surprising amount of nudity for a PG movie. Yeah, now, granted, they showed it in high school. It was yeah. photographs and, and at one black point and white silhouettes. But yeah. Frank made an interesting comment. Something about how these women who think so little of themselves to treat themselves this way. Yeah, I feel like that was... Just saying that because Blondie was so repulsed by the idea yeah. of this pornography. Right. But I don't know. It could also just be good old-fashioned racism. I don't know. I was definitely kind of on the lookout for racism. I think they did a good job of, I don't know, toning it down. Yeah. It was definitely there. I mean, there is that one scene in the shop where they barge in and they're like, hey, you <laughs> sold Beanpole this for like way more than Mustache bought it for. You need to take it back and then give him back his money. The shopkeeper's yeah, like, okay. I didn't sell that. And so Frank goes over and starts tearing shelves off the wall until the shopkeeper just gives them the money so they can leave. And then right. as they walk away, Beanpole's like, oh, wait, I bought it from this guy over here. Yes. And they just piece off and, and go they to a don't brothel. Really care. Yeah. And of course, Blondie does not want to partake in the brothel, but nope, they leave him behind. Disgusted, and he tells them so. Not his buddies, the women. Yeah, these are low women. What are, are you gonna coming. tell? What are you gonna tell your wife on your wedding night? And it's like, <laughs> you guys, I'm getting to your wedding night. <laughs> You're in a World War One movie. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Don't they realize they're in a war movie? Yeah. There's not going to be a wedding night. No. No. <laughs> Amidst all of this tomfoolery, they are actually training to go to war, and so they set up the infantry against the light cavalry in a training exercise, and they say, okay, infantry, you're going to storm over this hill and charge their line and engage them in hand-to-hand. -hand. Meanwhile, the cavalry is set up in a firing line to defend, and as the infantry charges up over the hill, there is a officer standing behind the light cavalry, and he says, aim high, and then open fire, and I'm like, are they using live ammunition for this training exercise? Uh, it kind of seemed like it. I mean, even yeah. if, even if you're aiming high. Right, those bullets are still going somewhere. Yeah. And that's just... Irresponsible? Yeah. Dangerous? Well, I mean, the whole war was irresponsible yeah I mean, the rest of the movie at the very least is irresponsible but it's in this training that frank runs into archie they haven't seen each other since australia you know it reminds me of the scene from braveheart mm -hmm. where they have planted the irish on the other side and they've allied with them so when the irish and the scottish are running at each other the british think that they're going to Clash. engage yeah and they actually slow down and like hug and shake hands and say <laughs> hi it's like exactly like that yeah they're supposed to be skirmishing and they're like oh my gosh it's you i never expected to see you here yep. yeah so they end the skirmish and they're like all right everyone who's supposed to be wounded get carried back by the people that aren't wounded and of course everybody in both companies like falls down as if they're wounded yeah and like just, everyone falls down dead like oh no yeah <laughs> That was funny, too. So Frank and Archie meeting up again is fortunate for Frank because it's revealed that the light cavalry aren't bringing their horses to Gallipoli. Right, which once we get there, we're like, well, of course they're not. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> they live on the side of a cliff. But Archie's able to persuade... Barton. I think it's Barton. Yeah, yeah. Persuade Barton to transfer Frank over from the infantry to the cavalry just because Frank is fast. Yeah, that's really the only thing Frank really has going for him is if he's fast. Yeah. And of course, all of Frank's buddies are really just peeved that he would abandon them like that. Yeah, it's kind of a not nice thing to do. Like, in any situation. So, okay, say you're hanging out with your group of friends, and then this other friend is like, hey, no, come hang out with me. And you leave one group of friends for the other group. Like, how's that first group of friends supposed to feel? Yeah. Like, that's not nice. Like, oh, they're better than me? You like them more than you like me? It's not nice. Yeah. But 
Frank, uh, Frank is always more interested in himself and his advancement, his survival, his benefit than other people's feelings or anything. He's just more interested in himself. Mm -hmm. It's kind of harsh to say, but it's accurate. After Frank has moved over to Cavalry and has a fight with his friends, there is a scene. A hotel is throwing a party for the Australian and New Zealand nurses. Yes. And the officers are invited. So there is a message that has come in for Barton, and Archie is the one set about delivering it. And so... Frank tags along. Frank tags along. And through legitimate avenues, Archie gets in and then... Frank uses his cunning ways to get into the party afterwards, but Colonel Barton gets a message from the front saying that the light cavalry is moving out that next morning at like 600 hours. Yeah. He looks up at Archie and says, you know what, have a few drinks, have a good time, because he knows that they're getting shipped out. Archie and Frank don't know that. So they just have a fun time dancing with all the nurses and all that other stuff. Then, after all that has happened... (laughs) (laughs) We finally get to Gallipoli, and for all the lighthearted and enjoyable moments that we had before getting to the front, now that we're actually at the front, things are vastly different. I think we're now paying the price for how jovial the movie has been up till now, and yeah, now we're really getting down to it. This is Gallipoli. There's near constant shelling. There are explosions all over the place. It's, you know, a war, and so we get to see a lot of very bleak and matter-of-fact things where the soldiers that have been there since they took that point have just gotten used to it. But all of these new guys are just surprised by what they see. And that's not to say that it's still not lighthearted in some ways. I mean... It is the swimming scene. Mm. That was lighthearted. Yeah. With a twist. So all of the soldiers, if you want to go swimming, you put a coin in a hat, and then they all go swimming. And then when the shelling arrives, all of the swimmers dive to avoid the shrapnel. And of course, one guy catches a piece of shrapnel in his arm. And so apparently, yeah, you get shrapnel, you win the pot. But a lot of silhouetted male nudity in that one. And sometimes it's not even silhouetted. Sometimes it's just... There are butts everywhere. Bare butt everywhere. Yeah, there are butts everywhere. Mm-hmm. So we got to see Mad Max's butt. Yes, we did. That's not the first time I've seen Mel Gibson's butt. Forever Young. Forever Young. Yep. Forever Young. Let me look it up. Tell you when it was. It was in 1992. And Mel Gibson started out in 1939 and was frozen, cryogenically frozen. Woke up in 1992. Mm. So when he wakes up, you know, you're frozen naked, of course, because heaven forbid clothes get frozen with you. That's how it is. Yeah. He climbs out of the machine and he's been forgotten. So he's not like in a lab. He's just... In a storage unit or something, and he climbs out and he's naked. You can see his butt. Okay. Yep. So that was the first time I've ever seen Mel Gibson's butt. Cool. Later on, we see the rest of Frank's friends arriving because the infantry have arrived, and so he gets to reconnect with them. And then a little bit afterwards, the infantry takes part in the Battle of Lone Pine on the evening of August 6th, 1915. The fighting is implied but not depicted. That's when Frank and think a couple other guys are just sitting on a hillside with a bunch of crosses and you can hear the gunfire. That's what that battle was. Oh, okay. And his buddies in the infantry went into that battle. Uh-huh. And one and a half of them came back. Yeah. Beanpole was killed. Blondie was critically wounded. Yes. And Mustache was, was like was... severely shell-shocked. He was. So this is the first time we really get to see the war directly affecting people that we've been following since the beginning of this movie. Yeah. It started getting real when they arrived, but this is actually, like, real. Yeah, right up to this point, everybody was like, yay, we get to fight, and, you know, we're gonna drive back the Turks, and we're fighting for Britain, and all this kind of stuff. They're proud to be there. Mm -hmm. And that's what their driving force is. And now that they have lost people and have been injured... You know, our five guys that we know, it's a different story. Yeah. And Frank is quite affected by this. Yeah, he doesn't like what he sees. No. So I think it's at this point that we get to see a scene with Colonel Barton and the British commander. I don't remember what his name was. He was very Tarkin-esque, like Tarkin from Star Wars. Yeah, he reminded me of Prince Charles. They are going to do a military 
maneuver, shell the Turks, charge their trenches, and that will allow the British forces to land elsewhere. Mm-hmm. The idea is that they are going to stop shelling precisely at 4.30, and then the infantry will charge immediately following the shelling. Well, the guy in charge of the artillery, his clock said 4.30, and Barton's clock said, like, 4.23. Yeah, I think it was a seven-minute difference. It was like seven difference. minutes behind. And you know, when they were in the tent planning that, they made a point of showing us the difference in clocks. Why didn't they synchronize their watches? I'm not 100% sure. It's not really clear if those seven minutes were the difference between life and death. I think there were other things involved, but it didn't help that there was a discrepancy of seven minutes. Yeah. So if they had just taken a moment and looked at each other's watches, they were standing right next to each other. And timing was very important. Why wouldn't they make sure their watches said the same thing? So before this offensive is set to take place... Archie is approached and Barton wants to make him a runner because he is certain that communications are going to become an issue. And so he wants someone fast that run back and forth between the front and command to make sure that messages stay moving. So Archie doesn't want to do that. And so he tells Barton, hey, have Frank do it instead. He's just as fast. So Frank gets put in that position. And the idea is that they are going to wait for the shelling to end, and then attack. And so the shelling begins, and then the shelling ends. And Barton is up at the front, he looks down at his watch, and it says, you know, 423, and he's like, oh, we can't go yet, they're probably just reloading to do another shelling. And meanwhile, the guy down at artillery is like, okay, we're done, that's it. And so it's at that point that they're looking up over the top of the thing, and you can see the Turks moving back into their trenches. Right, so the shelling drove the Turks out of their trenches. That's why, okay, I see it all now. So they send two waves up over the top of the trenches. Yeah, and these guys aren't even making it over the edge. Many of them just fall right back. They're like waist high out of the trench and just fall right back. Mm-hmm. Some of them are making it out and fall as soon as they step foot on the ground. It is mind-blowing. Yeah. So it's at this point that Barton's second-in-command is talking to HQ over the phone. And the second-in-command says something about, like, a flag being seen over by the trench. And so communication gets cut off. And so... Frank starts off running to tell them that the attack has failed and that they can't keep attacking or is they're going to get cut down. Yeah, what was the importance of the flag? HQ thinks they saw a cavalry flag in the Turkish trench, which means that there were Australian soldiers in the Turkish trench. And so when they sent Frank back, they said, no, there was a flag in there. You need to go help the men that are in that trench. Oh, okay. And so... Frank gets back and Barton's like, well, who said there was a flag? And his second in command was like, I thought I heard someone say the flag. And so I told them there was a flag. And so Barton sends Frank above that guy's head to another HQ, to like the general that's in charge. And so Frank shows up at that tent and says, hey, we're getting cut down here. And... The general's like, hey, are the British okay? And they're like, oh, yeah, the British are already there. They're super fine. And so the general's like, okay, don't have them do a third wave because two waves have gone. And so while Frank is running back to the front, and there was this whole thing where... About the running. Frank had to run in front of a position that was like heavily covered in machine gun fire it was very tense and whatnot but while frank is running they get the phone working again and the british guy from hq is like hey you need to go keep pushing like i don't care what's going on you need to go and so barton is there and he's got his gun and his whistle and he's like i'm going over the top with my men and frank is running and then he hears the whistle for the charge and he just like drops yeah because he knows he's too late And all of the guys in the light cavalry, they go up over the top, they're charging across the battlefield, and they're just getting cut down. And the very last thing that we see is Archie sprinting across the battleground, and he just gets peppered with gunshots. And the still shot of him being shot is how we end the movie. The last, like, two minutes of the movie are incredibly tense and incredibly powerful, particularly the moment when Frank hears the whistle go off, If he could hear the whistle, that means he was pretty close. Yeah. And he just stops and he drops and he cries out. And oh, it's so heartbreaking. He is running to save his friend's life. He knows that if that whistle goes off before he gets there, Archie will be killed. Mm -hmm. And he's right, of course. So he's already seen two of his friends go down. 
Yeah. And Archie is arguably his best friend. He seems to have the most affection yeah. for Archie. Because of all the time they spent together walking through the desert. Yeah. Getting to Perth and whatnot. Yeah. There were a couple of things that we skipped over. Obviously, there was the machine gun trench. Uh, there was also a thing that Archie and his Uncle Jack did before Archie would run. Yeah. Like, almost like a mantra. Yeah. It was like, what are your legs... Their springs. What are they going to do? They're going to hurl me forward on the track. Um, how fast can you go? As fast as a leopard. How fast will you go? As fast as a leopard. And then, then it's like, show it's me. It's like, show me or something like that. Yeah. And that's like the last thing we hear Archie say. Yes. He, he goes says through it to his himself. Mantra. And that's the same time where we see him and the soldiers around him putting their knives in the wall and hanging tokens. Their wedding rings, their, watches. Yeah, Archie notes. hangs the stopwatch from his Uncle Jack and his running medal. Yeah. And there's letters and you see for the last little while, while things have been ramping up, we've seen lots of soldiers writing letters. That was a very moving moment for me. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention that we saw Les. Yes, um, we did. In the second wave. He was in the second wave. And got shot like almost immediately yep. of getting out of that trench so yep. i liked that because we got to see the difference between archie and less archie was still archie he's cheerful even in the face of death well, I wouldn't say he was cheerful, but he was like... No, he was more collected yeah. than Wes. Wes was almost openly crying. Yeah, he, he was, was falling apart. Yeah, he was afraid and... Gone was that bravado that he mm -hmm. had back in Australia. Right, because in hindsight, that bravado was incredibly shallow. And Archie's attitude runs incredibly deep. And it was able to sustain him up till the moment that he climbed up above that trench. Yeah. It's a heavy subject, and it almost seems weird to ask this, but was there a part of this movie that stood out as a part that you enjoyed that you could almost say was your favorite part? I did really like this movie, mm -hmm. so my hesitation isn't because I can't think of one, it's because I'm trying to pick between them. Yeah. I love seeing camaraderie in movies. That's often my favorite part of movies. So I would have to say my favorite part of this movie was when the four guys were together, Frank, Snowy, Bernie, and Bill. Um, Billy and... I think I messed up. Barney. Bernie. Barney and Bill. Okay. When yeah. the four of them were out in Cairo having a good time and being goofy with the mules, that was fantastic. I think that was my favorite part. Yeah. yeah I'd have to agree. I don't want to make it sound sound like this isn't a good movie because it is very well done. Mm -hmm. It is very, I think, good at representing the soldiers and their mindset as they were preparing to go to Gallipoli and as they were at Gallipoli and they honestly thought that they were doing something good and it just ended up not going well for them. And I think the thing that stands out to me as my favorite part was after Frank and Archie met up in Cairo and that time of them reconnecting and Archie pulling some strings to get Frank over into the cavalry, I enjoyed seeing them reconnect mm -hmm. because we got to see them forge this friendship in Australia as they were heading to Perth and then the satisfaction of them reconnecting was really nice to see and I just enjoyed that part. Like they climbed up to somewhere on the pyramid and they carved in their names you know frank and archie 1917 or something like that right next to the napoleon carving or whatever it was yeah. <laughs> i really enjoyed that part and it was good to see i feel like our least favorite part is going to be roughly the same my least favorite thing in this movie was definitely the british commander that was like come hell or high water your men are going over that wall just seeing him send all of those guys to their death was my least favorite part. Yeah, I would have to agree. That was very frustrating to see somebody discount a group of people. I don't know much about the attitude of the crown towards the people of Australia, especially back in 1915, because Australia was founded as a penal colony. So I can see how it would be that Britons would look down on Australians because they are convicts and the descendants of convicts. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that attitude survived until 1915, but it felt like that's why the British were so dismissive of the Australian army and their plight. Yeah. And I mean, you can understand that one British guy, based on the information that he had, that, you know, there were 
supposedly Australian soldiers in the Turkish trenches, and so they needed to go reinforce those soldiers. And it was a horrible situation of miscommunication, but just watching that one officer speak to Frank that way and be so dismissive, and then to have the general above that guy turn around and say, tell him to call off the attack. Go on, go on, head back. Yeah. You almost wish that Frank had gone to that guy first. Right. <laughs> yeah. Julia, here at the end of us watching Gallipoli and talking about it for so long, what are your final thoughts about it? I really enjoyed this movie. I enjoyed it for more than its historical significance. I did learn a bit about what happened at Gallipoli. It inspires me to learn more, you know, factual things, not just what's on the screen. But I also think it did a really good job of entertaining me in a more lighthearted way. Yeah. And it struck a balance between the lighthearted and the heavy-hearted that I really liked. And it was beautifully filmed. It was beautifully filmed and well-acted, well-produced. I really, really enjoyed this movie. And it makes me a little uh, disappointed, I guess, that we did not cover it on our previous hiatus. Considering we saw so many faces from the first movie. Yes, it was on our list, we just didn't get to it. Yeah. Because there's so many there's so many movies, good movies, that we would like to cover that have connections to Mad Max in some way, that we just can't see them all. And this one just didn't make it last time. So I'm really glad that we did it first this time. And I'm just, I really enjoyed it. I am not the kind of person to run out and watch, like, war movies. It's just not a genre that I choose to watch. But I also like the balance that this movie strikes between the mindset of the soldiers versus the reality of war. It kind of reminds me of Full Metal Jacket, which is very different from Gallipoli. It is not even remotely the same thing. It's Stanley Kubrick and the Marines and Vietnam, and it's this whole different situation. But it's another illustration of the mindset of the soldier. And the first half of Full Metal Jacket is the Marines in boot camp with Arlie Ermey as the drill sergeant, who does an amazing performance there. But in boot camp, these men are broken down and they are trained and they are fine-tuned to be fighting machines. And then you get to the second half of the movie and everything changes. And in this movie, you have the whole first more than half of the movie and it's just the men, and they are in their daily lives, and they're thinking about signing up and signing up and getting trained, and then when they get to the front, that's when the brutal realities of everything hits them, and everything just has a total tonal shift that I really appreciate. So I would have to agree that this is an extremely good movie. Yes. And an extremely important movie, and I'm glad we watched it. Would you recommend this movie? Absolutely. People should watch this movie. Yeah, I think <laughs> Gallipoli gets the Mad Max Minute stamp of approval. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you should absolutely watch this movie. It is very well acted. Very well shot. Peter Weir did an amazing job directing this. The cinematography by Russell Boyd was amazing. The editing by William M. Anderson was really good. Everything top down, stand out and amazing and just an incredibly stark illustration of Australia's involvement in the First World War. Well, thank you for spending some time with us and listening to us talk about the movie Gallipoli. As we said, please go out and see it. We are going to be back next time with another, I wouldn't say as intense movie, but also a more serious toned movie. So keep an eye on our listener page for information about that that will be forthcoming. And uh, we hope to see you there. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Gallipoli is presented by the Australian Film Commission in association with R&R Films. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at madmaxminute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute's review of Gallipoli. We'll see you next time.